Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning? We begin a new series on the 13th chapter called the Love Chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. No doubt this is the greatest literary chapter that Paul the Apostle ever penned. But it's more than just a great literary chapter. It's about what is supreme about the Christian life, which is love. A group of professionals ask a group of kids the meaning of love. Now, the ages of these kids were between four and eight. What does love mean? And, of course, the answers were funny, cute, and some profound. One child said, here's the meaning of love. When a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) Oh, if it were only that easy. Another, um, Another child wrote, love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. (laughs) This gal writes, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) I let my big sister pick on me because my mom says she only picks on me because she loves me. So I pick on my baby sister because I love her. One gal writes, Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, and then he wears it every day. (laughs) Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsomer than Denzel Washington. (laughs) Obviously, a little boy writes the next one. Love is what's found on Valentine's Day cards. It's all the stuff we'd like to say, but we wouldn't be caught dead saying it. (laughs) And a girl writes, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. And then finally... When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. There is no subject so universally treated, written about, sung about, than love. You couldn't count all the love songs that have been written Love songs to girlfriends, to boyfriends, to husbands, to wives, to pets, to parents, even to God. Why? Simply because we all crave love. We all want to know that we are genuinely, unconditionally loved. We want love more than anything, and we will do anything to get it. We also want to be able to give unconditional love. It's part of who we are. Dr. Carl Menninger, who is a famous psychiatrist, was on a quest to find out the very root cause that 
the patients he was treating were in the clinics that he had. Why were they there? What's the root cause? What's the problem? And so he instructed his clinical staff to provide what he called an atmosphere of creative love. They were to give large doses of love to the patients. There were no unloving attitudes, no negative attitudes that were tolerated. And he discovered that within six months, the average stay of the patients in the clinics had been reduced to half their normal time. It was cut in half. And Menninger writes, Love cures people, both the ones who give it and the ones who receive it. Chapter 13 has been called the hymn of love, the hymn of the New Testament, the love chapter. It's been called the Beatitudes set to music. Henry Drummond wrote a classic book put out years ago. I was going through it this week. It's called The Greatest Thing in the World, based on this chapter. The Greatest Thing in the World, Love. In that little booklet, he says that love is the summum bonum, the, the, the supreme good from which all other good flows. And if you know anything about the Corinthian church and the book of 1 Corinthians itself, then you know that chapter 13 is a breath of fresh air in this book. Because the theme of the book is all of the problems they had in the church that Paul was trying to help solve. And so in the midst of a malaise of problems, a church stifled with them, comes this chapter of love. Now we're going to read this together and we're going to kind of take an overview of it this morning and then pick it apart verse by verse, thought by thought for the next few weeks so that we can be elevated in what true love is and hopefully we will exercise it more and more in our marriages, among parents to children, children to parents, friendships, and as members of the body of Christ. But understand that chapter 13 is really not a definition of love. It is rather what love looks like. It's a display of love. And it's here for a very important reason. Let's look this morning then at the at this chapter. It's short, but profound. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass, a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long. It's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. 
But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I still struggle with that verse. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now the word love is used nine times in this little chapter, which which brings us to the first and most important question, what's the meaning of love? What, is, what does love mean? And I'll tell you why it's important to ask that question. Because everybody uses the word love. In fact, I think because love is so overused that it's so misunderstood. You see, in English, we have a problem. Uh, we use the same word for a variety of experiences. We use love for enjoying something. We use love for liking something. We use love for lusting after something or someone. The same word, but different meanings. We say, I love warm sunshine. I love ice cream. I love my wife. I love God. Or as some say, let's make love. Same word. A divergent variety of meanings. And so the word is so overused. In fact, sometimes when we say to a person, I love you, what we really mean is I love me and I want you. Which is the worst form of selfishness. It's the absolute opposite of the very true meaning of love. And then in our culture, we measure love. By words. We measure love by gifts or flowers or embraces. In 1875, the longest love letter on record was written. The man's name, Marcel de la Clure, to Magdalene Vialore. He wrote the words, I love you, 1,875,000 times. It was to be a thousand times the calendar year, 1875 times a thousand. One million eight hundred and seventy-five thousand times. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I doubt she read it all. She looked through it, got the idea. Now, some some people some people hear that and they go, Wow, that's so romantic to have to have sat down and penned by hand. I love you. Don't get too excited. He hired somebody else to do it and gave her the letter. And my question is, what will their love look like in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? The longest kiss on record was a young teenage couple from Hanover, West Germany, who stayed locked, lip-locked, clenched for 105 minutes, 48 seconds. The reason they gave up is they were about to pass out. Now, if, if we look at that and go, there's love. I think we have a big problem. Because again, what will their relationship look at, look like in time to come? As the years roll by, I doubt they're going to be lip-locked for 105 minutes at age 70. 
Now, the Bible uses the word love, and it uses the word love a lot. If you have a New King James Version, 360 times the word love appears. If you have a New Living Translation, I think it's 651 times. But when the Bible uses the term love, it is more specific, less ambiguous than English, simply by virtue of the language. And here's probably a good place to review. Some of you know this material, some of you do not. Bear with me if you're already Bible experts. There's four Greek words for the word love. And that's good because it helps hone down what the author means when he employs a certain word. You know, we say, I love warm sunshine, love my wife, love ice cream. Greek language doesn't do that. There were specific terms for specific types of love. First of all, there was the Greek word eros. Eros. It's the word that is never once found in the Bible. But it is a Greek word. It was after the Greek god, eros. And the root meaning of eros means to grasp or to gratify. It was self-gratifying love. It usually spoke of love on the physical level. We still use the word in English. It appears in words like erotic, erogenous, eroticize. It's love purely on the physical plane. Self-gratifying love. Never used once in the Bible. The second term it is used in the Bible, is the word storgi or storgas. And it's the love of a family. It's natural affection. It's the affection a a father would have toward a child or a mother toward a child. And I remember before I was a dad, I used to think, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can actually be a father. I don't know what I'll do with a child if I'll be able to love that child, but it's an amazing transformation that happens when that little child is born. It's this natural welling up of deep love and affection, and the Bible uses the word storgos for that, as do the Greeks in general. The example that the Greeks often used for this type of love was when an invading army came into a city to destroy it and the king of that army allowed two brothers who were living in the city to escape. And the king said, you can not only escape, but you can take out of the city whatever you can go home and carry in your own arms. And so the two brothers appeared at the gate a little time later, one holding his mother, the other his father. That was storgas, family love, natural affection. When the Bible uses the term, it uses it in a negative sense. In 2 Timothy 3, it talks about the conditions on the earth in the last days. And Paul says, in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, boastful, unloving. Astorgos is the Greek word. Without natural affection of parents toward children and children toward parents. There's a third word. The Bible uses it a lot. It's the word phileo or philia. We still use that word in words like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philosophy. It means an affection, a warmth, a friendship love. But as good a word as it is, it's a selective word. 
It implies that I choose the people that I will show this affection to. I pick my friends. It's that fond affection of friend to friend. There is a fourth word, and that brings us to 1 Corinthians 13, because it's the word used in this chapter. It's the word agape. Now, if you don't know any of those other words, you know this one. It is bandied about in Christian circles, has been, will always be agape love. Agapao is the word. It's the predominant word in the New Testament for love. But here's something. Though it's used in the Bible, the Greeks hated the word. They, they seldom use it. It's only found one time in classical Greek in the writings of the Greek writer Xenophon, agapon. He uses the word. And here's my point. It seems that the word agape was virtually a Christian invention. That the New Testament writers, in order not to identify God with the pagan concepts of the Greeks, decided to use a word, a new word for a new experience. God's love is greater than anything else in the world. It demands its own language, its own word. Because it came to mean self-sacrificing, unconditional, consistent love. Agape love. A couple of things about agape love. Number one, agape love is the love that God traffics in. When you read about God loving, that's the word that is used throughout the New Testament. And the ultimate demonstration of God's love is what? The cross. In fact, you can hardly find a verse in the New Testament that speaks about God loving without a reference to the cross. So that God's ultimate demonstration of the way he loves is to say, look, look at what my son did for you to pay for your sins. That is the ultimate demonstration of love. John 3.16, for God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, agaped me, and gave himself for me. The cross. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his agape, his love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. What does all that mean to us? It means this. It means that God, your creator, the one who knows everything about you, all of the things that even probably people who are close to you don't know about you, that one little area of your life that you keep hidden, he knows. And he loves you anyway. He loves you anyway. He loves you consistently anyway. He died for you anyway. In fact, that's why he died, is to wash your sins away. There's a great old song. It's a hymn. You know, sometimes the hymns say it better than anybody. It's uh, written by Frederick Lehman. It's called The Love of God. And there's one verse. It's the last verse, I believe, in the song. It says, and listen to the imagery. Could we, with ink, the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God? 
would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. In other words, the more you study the love of God, the more unfathomable it is. Whenever I find a person who says, well, you know, I'm pretty good. I I deserve God's love. I know that I've just met a person who doesn't know a thing about the love of God. And doesn't know the truth about himself. God's love, agape love. In fact, just to show you that, if you were to take chapter 13, it's just sort of a little exercise, and pull out the word love, insert the word Jesus every time the word love is found, you'd look at it and go, wow, that, that fits perfectly. Just try it. Look at verse 4. Jesus suffers long, and he is kind. He does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. He's not puffed up. Jesus doesn't behave rudely. He doesn't seek his own. He's not provoked. He thinks no evil. Jesus does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. He bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus never fails. Good fit? Perfect. But now, just for fun, put your name in it and see how far you can make it without gagging. If you're going to go, well, listen, I can get pretty far in that list. What about, and skip never fails. Oh, man, give me a break. It doesn't work. Agape love, the highest form of God's love, a new word to speak about a new thing. It fits with Jesus. Here's another truth, though, about it. This word gets sticky. Agape love is the love you and I are to emulate. After all, this chapter was written not to God, it was written to Christians, right? And it's love on display for the church. Why? Because love isn't a feeling that you can't control. It's a choice you can control. That's one of the most important things about agape love, is you make a choice to do it. It is not a feeling, it's not a a warm, fuzzy response just to people who are lovable towards you. That's liking, not loving. And we confuse love and like. Listen, you can't like everybody. And, and I'm not sure you're, you're supposed to. It's not possible. Do you think God likes everything about you? Newsflash, he doesn't. But he does love you consistently, sacrificially, and unconditionally. I think it was agape love that William Shakespeare had in mind when he penned his words... Love is not love that alters when it alteration finds, nor bends with the remover to remove. No, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. Agape love. So when somebody comes to my office or one of the offices of the pastors and they sit down as husband and wife and he looks at his wife and looks at the counselor and says, You know, I used to love her, but I don't love her anymore. That's a choice he made. That's a choice. Just like another choice that a girl made when she walked into a fabric store and asked the store owner, I would like to find, she said, some noisy, rustling, white material. And the store owner said, well, I think I have a couple of rolls 
that are exactly what you need. But, but why do you want noisy, rustling white material? She said, for my wedding gown. She said, you see, I'm getting married, but my fiancé is blind. And when I march down the aisle, I want him to know when I've arrived at the altar without him getting embarrassed. That's so beautiful because if you think about it, women dream about their wedding day. They dream about the kind of dress they're going to wear, and they probably don't have in mind noisy, rustling white material. But she was willing to sacrifice the dream she had of her wedding day because her fiancé was blind, and she wanted to make sure he wasn't embarrassed. That's the meaning of love then, agape love. Um, I want you to go back to chapter 12, a few verses. And, and just a few verses because of time. But I want to show you what I call the malfunction of love. Why this chapter is here. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administration, variety of tongues. Are all apostles... Are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have the gift of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? The obvious answer, no. But earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet, I show you a more excellent way. And here's the more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Now, I've discovered that people love chapter 13. They love it. It's on cards. It's on plaques inside people's homes. We turn to it. We speak about love out of it. But usually it is removed from its context so that we miss the entire point. You know why this chapter is here? Why this great hymn of love appears here? It seems out of place if you read through the whole book. It's because love has malfunctioned in the church of Corinth. Church of Corinth is missing something. Love. Spiritual gifts were present. Doctrine was present. Numerical growth was present. But love wasn't. And so, here is Paul, writing about the problems of the church, and there's a parenthesis. Chapter 12 is the abuse of spiritual gifts. Chapter 14, the abuse of spiritual gifts. The parenthesis, love. This is what it looks like. And then he continues his discussion. It is much easier to be gifted than to be loving. It's a whole lot easier to be right about an issue, doctrinally correct, than it is to be loving. Somebody once said that love is the circulatory system for the body of Christ. Well, if that's the case, then Corinth had a stroke. Because they missed it completely. Uh, Here's a sampling. In chapter 3, Paul addresses a problem of carnality, division in the church. Remember, he says, some of you are saying, I'm of Paul, and others, I'm of Apollos, and others, I'm of Cephas, and others, I'm of Christ. Paul says, you're all carnal. You're all dividing the body of Christ. Then in chapter 5, there was a problem with sexual purity because 
He says, I hear there's sexual immorality among you, the kind that even isn't named among the heathen, that a man has his father's wife. There was an incestuous relationship that the church at Corinth just winked at, didn't care about, tolerated. Then in chapter 6, there was another problem of litigation. They were suing each other. And so he says, dare any of you go to law one with another before the unrighteous? Chapter 7, there was problems with marriages. Rampant divorce was taking place. Divorce for any reason. We just don't get along. We're leaving. The next few chapters, there were problems with personal liberty. Eating habits. Some were eating meat sacrificed to an idol that stumbled other Christians. In chapter 11, there were problems with worship. At the communion service, which was like a potluck in those days. They had the Lord's Supper, but they had a love feast. He says, when you come together as a church, you're not coming together for the better, but for the worse. Because half of the people go hungry and half of you are drunk. Then in chapter 14 and 12, it's the problems with spiritual gifts. People were speaking out in tongues in the middle of a service. In chapter 15, there were doctrinal problems. Some were saying that there is no resurrection. But the very heart of all of the problems was their lack of love. The heart of the problem wasn't that they didn't have spiritual gifts or gifted people. But they lacked the fruit of the Spirit, which was love. Sort of like a Christmas tree, isn't it? Can you tell what kind of a tree it is by the gifts that are under the Christmas tree? So we go to people's house and they got it all decked out, the ornaments, the tinsels, gifts. And we go, what a, what a great tree. Well, it's not. It's dead. It's not a great tree. In a couple of weeks, the needles are going to fall off. So can you tell what kind of a tree it is by the gifts? No, you've got to look real close and see if it's producing anything. Is there fruit? Is there fruit? And so we can be tremendously gifted and powerful and accurate and exemplary, but we can also be empty of love. That's how love had malfunctioned. And what Paul is saying basically in verse 1, 2, and 3 is that the path of love is greater than the path of power. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. And you can have all the gifts of the Spirit, but if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit... Big, zip, zero, zilch. Nothing. The gauge of spirituality is not how much charisma you have or how doctrinally accurate you are, but the fruit of the Spirit that you and I would show. In the first John chapter 3, he says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. So somebody says, you know, that person really loves God. Boy, he loves God. He's such a fine Christian. He just doesn't like Christian people and never, never fellowships, never goes around any of them. But he's really a good Christian. Really? We know we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. We care for other people. We care for those who are in the body of Christ. Listen to this. This is a news report from the year 200 A.D., written by an unbelieving journalist, so to speak, an author who was looking at Christian churches and writing about them. Now, now what if some came to our church and just followed you around for a week or two and was going to write about Christians based on observing our lives? This is what this author wrote. 
After observing the fellowship of Christians, he said, It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their needs. They spare nothing. Jesus Christ has put it into their hearts that they are brothers. Now, I'm going to close with one final point, And that is what I call the misunderstanding of love. You know, we live in a culture, I I mentioned, and I want to just sort of expand and then close. A culture, a society, that greatly misunderstands love, especially Christian love. How many times have somebody said to you, if you were a Christian, you would, whatever, you would tolerate, you would let, you would allow, you would do this. I want you to turn to chapter 15. I, I could cite... Dozens of these texts, but we don't have the time. I just want to show you one. Look at verse 33 of chapter 15. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Verse 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. If you've ever read this book of 1 Corinthians, you know the tone with which it is written. It's kind of a harsh tone. It's, it's admonitory in tone. He's trying to solve all of the problems that are going on in the church. And so it has an edge to it. It's sharp. And I said that love is misunderstood. People think, well, if you're a Christian, you ought to just tolerate anything. You ought to even wink at sin. Can't we all just get along? Forget about doctrine. Forget about behavior. Truth doesn't matter. Can't we just all hug each other? And so, if you ever speak out against unrighteousness, unholiness, and you ever draw a line of truth, then people think, that's so unloving. Well, what if Elijah the prophet would have thought that way? Would he have ever confronted Ahab and Jezebel? Nope. What if Peter and John would have thought that way? They never would have confronted the city of Jerusalem. What if Paul the Apostle thought that? Would he have ever confronted the Judaizers, the Gnostics, the legalists? Okay, how about this? What if Jesus thought that way? Think of some of the things Jesus said in the New Testament. Now, this is incarnate love, Jesus. You know, people say, what would Jesus do? He would just smile and tolerate anything. He would? Have you ever read the New Testament? If you think that, you might as well go home, find Matthew 23, rip it out of your Bible and throw it away. Because in that chapter, incarnate love speaks. And this is what he says. Ready? Woe unto you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, you slimy snakes. You are of your father, the devil. That is incarnate love. Was Jesus having a bad Messiah day? What? What What was it? It was confrontational. You see, sometimes confrontation is not only legitimate, it's mandated. And here's my point. You can't have love without truth. They're inseparable. When John wrote, he said, I write this to Gaius, whom I love in the truth. One of the most loving things you could ever do is to tell people the truth. Let's say you go to a doctor. You're not feeling well. The doctor runs tests, finds out you have cancer. What kind of a doctor would he be if he said, you know, I just enjoyed the time we spent together. 
And I like you, and I hope you like me. And we can have more times like this. Can we hug? Knowing all the while you have a deadly disease and you will die. Now, if he's a good doctor, he's going to say, Sir, ma'am, with all due respect, you have cancer. It's an aggressive type of cancer, and you will die unless I operate quickly. Would you look at the doctor and say, That's the most unloving thing I've ever heard. No, he's telling you the truth because he loves you. And Paul confronts this church because he loves them. And that is where love is so greatly misunderstood. Verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity, it rejoices in the truth. Listen, agape love doesn't mean you wink at sin, you're lenient, you're tolerant of any kind of behavior. That's not agape, that's sloppy agape. I'll put it to you plainly. You say, well, you already have, but I'll, I'll do it again. If you had a child or children and you said, I love them so much, I never want to tell them anything negative, anything bad, anything. I never want to say no. I want to let them do whatever they want to do and never discipline. I love them so much. I'm going to tell you that's not love. That's idiotic. You're ruining a child. True love demands at certain times discipline, confrontation. And so this letter is filled with it. So that's agape love. It's a new kind of experience. It's the kind of love God traffics in, which includes discipline. It's the kind of love we're called to, to exemplify. It's not based upon a feeling that we can't control, but a choice we can control. And though we're called to it, we all know love can malfunction, and churches can become places that are right and orthodox and unloving. And that's why we need to be open to the Holy Spirit putting truth in our hearts to change us. We can never come closed-hearted, but open-hearted, open-minded. And let the infusion of truth, the Word of God, govern the exercise of our love. I want to close with an example. And it's not the longest kiss in the world from two teenagers in Germany. It's not a long love letter that somebody hired to write. I think here's a good example of agape love between people. It's written by a surgeon, Dr. Richard Seltzer, who performed an operation. This is what he writes. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this this wry mouth that I have made, who gaze and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say it. It will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful, 
he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close that I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. You know what? That's love. That's a guy who once stood next to that bride and said, until death do us part. That's a choice that a couple made. It's a choice that God makes toward us. It's a choice that God calls us to make to one another. And hopefully in the next few weeks, our view and practice of love would be elevated as we discover God's love. Heavenly Father, we pray for that. We pray for it, Lord, because it is not in us naturally. Oh, the other types are family affection, friendship love, even physical love. But the idea of agape love, self-sacrificing, means that we have to say no to ourselves a lot and yes to others a lot. And Lord, that's just not part of our human fallen nature. So as you renew us day by day with your own nature, your own character, I pray that we as a church, as husbands, wives, as workers, as friends, as acquaintances, that our love for each other would be elevated to agape. So that, as Jesus said, by this the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. We trust, Lord, that the work of your Holy Spirit is ongoing You are committed to us. We now commit ourselves as a group, as a church, to you and to this process. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.